Kevin Hensler is a doctor candidate at Temple University of Religion with a focus in the Hebrew Bible. He holds two master's degrees, a Master of Arts in Semitic and Egyptian Languages and Literature from Catholic University, and a Master's in Theological Studies from Notre Dame in Biblical Studies. Furthermore, he spent a year as a visiting graduate student at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Admittedly, I didn't know any of that before I asked to interview him. All I knew was that every time I had a question that had anything to do with religions, Kevin was always able to at least try to answer it. Even with that resume, speaking with Kevin is nothing short of impressive. He's like some sort of pressurized font of biblical insight and knowledge, and it's truly impressive. Uh, far from pedantic, Kevin is seemingly enjoyed by recent interest in religions and always seems willing to play around with some of, of my ideas, as far-fetched and as uh, wild as they may occasionally be. I had a great conversation with Kevin. Honestly, he's, he's wild to talk to, and I cannot wait to have him back on with new questions. Without further ado, I give you Kevin Hensler. First question. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be a Jew? And how has that changed through history? Okay, that's a that's a very difficult question to start out with. Um, <laughs> feel feel yeah. free to pun. I can I have other contextualizing questions. Yeah, no, Judaism has lots of different definitions. So Judaism is uh, primarily both an ethnicity and a religion, which makes it really challenging. So there's a lot of people who don't care about the religious elements of Judaism at all, um, who will consider themselves Jewish based on having, you know, uh, Jewish family, uh, being born into a Jewish family. Um, and then there are lots of people who are pretty passionate about their uh, religion. Uh, Judaism is a non-proselytizing religion, meaning uh, generally Judaism is not sought converts. Um, that it's, it's a religion of the Jews, of this ethnic group, the Jews, um, who are sort of a sub-ethnic group of uh, Israel, at least in their own narrative, there's some debate in sort of the biblical studies world as to um, the degree to which Judah was part of Israel. Um, by the time we have like histor- like archaeological records, Israel and Judah are two separate countries, and there's an open question about why is this country Judah, which is so obsessed with their identity, in relation to another country. Um, the Bible's answer is that they were one country once and they're actually one sort of collector group of people. Um, almost no serious scholars think that um, like every single Israelite tribe has a common origin like the Exodus anymore. Um, there's some scholars who believe, who still historically believe in the Exodus. I'm, I'm probably one of them. Um, but almost none of us... Um, think that all of Israel uh, came out of Egypt in the Exodus. There's there's probably sort of some kind of, of alliance. Uh, like, uh, I suppose you would say having something to do with the god El, since the Israel name basically means wrestles wrestles with El, uh, which, which can mean God, can be the generic name for God, but also is a proper uh, Semitic god named El, who is the head of the divine pantheon in the Ugaritic pantheon. Um, yeah, the these are yeah these are these are some spicy questions. So basically, going back to Judaism, um, these are people who are who are descended from people of the tribe of Judah or people who have converted to Judaism, though they didn't see converts along the way. And whether you know your the degree to which I would say almost probably every Jew has ancestry that traces back to um, 
to Judah, the, given the amount of time we've had to, you know, intermix, uh, you know, with other peoples, the, the degree to which all Jews are mostly descended from Judahites uh, from, you know, I don't know, the Second Temple period, that I think is more open to debate, but certainly sort of ethnic identity as belonging to this group and having belonged to this group for a very long time is very important to Jewish identity. And it's also a religion, right? Of then it's the, the religion of the of the people um, who belong to this ethnic group and the people who want to learn from those uh, people, um, which makes it really really complicated. Uh, Maimonides had um, I don't remember how many he gave, but he kind of put forward a number of statements that would be like a Jewish creedal statement, uh, which in his writings, uh, which are probably uh, in his most famous work, A Guide for the Perplexed, probably there. Um, I, I'm not an expert at medieval Ju Judaism, and I'm not an expert at Maimonides, um, but I know that he he kind of uh, defined like what it means to be a Jew religiously. But then there's a lot of Jews in the modern world who care about Jewish identity. They don't care about Jewish religious claims at all. A lot of them are pretty secular. Um, probably the, the default position among Jews in America is belief in God, belief that it's significant to preserve Jewish identity. Um, but, you know, not going very much in depth. Uh, reform Judaism is the, is the dominant practice form of Judaism. And I think a lot of Reform Jews very rarely go to synagogue. So that's, that's kind of how it is. Um, yeah, Judaism is really hard to define. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, so it's super complex. Yeah. You chose to study it, however. I chose to study their the Bible. Bible. Yes, the Hebrew right. Bible. Okay. Yes. Sorry. You chose yeah. to study the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. I wanted to start with a question that was like super broad. Yeah, and you, yeah. Right, and I obviously accomplished mm -hmm. that, and you answered well. Mm -hmm. And I guess my second question would be I guess presumably you're Catholic. I am Catholic, yes. You teach in a Catholic school. I teach at a Catholic school. What first attracted you to studying the Hebrew Bible, knowing that it's so complicated? You could have studied another complicated thing like physics. Yeah, I, I think I would say that. I mean, the story of, of my interest in the Hebrew Bible is long. I think that when I was, um, I think I was always fascinated by, like, the ancient world and, like, these, like, like, a very romantic sense of, like, this world where everything, like, has, like, a deeper meaning than our modern world where everything seems so shallow. Um, and I probably felt that even as a kid, even though I might not have used the language to describe that. Um, that's probably a wrong perspective. Humans have probably always been shallow. Um, I do feel like people felt things, like, like we were really good in our culture at just like, you know, dancing through life, uh, to quote of a song from the musical Wicked. Um, at just like really, truly, to, to continue quoting that song, skimming the surface of life um, <laughs> and, and, and not going deep, right? Yeah. And, and, and I think that there's a lot of opportunity to go deep, but I think that like, yeah, there, there's a lot of ways that we are, we have more material, um, like wealth, uh, even even people who are not doing particularly well have access to in, amazing conveniences in the modern world. Um, but they don't seem to be making us happier. I think that on average, we are we are less happy than a lot of the people um, in the ancient world. And I don't, I think I perceived that um, a little, I mean, the ancient world was tough to live in. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, but I, I feel like, you know, they didn't know what they didn't have. Uh, we would we would have a lot of trouble living there. But I think that humans, I don't know. It, it seemed like the stakes were higher, and there was less anime. There was less meaninglessness in life um, that they perceived. And I, I think I I yearned for that like romantic time where everything seemed so 
uh, so interesting uh, compared to uh, the everyday. And that, that's probably an unfair perspective, right? So I, so I really liked the ancient world, uh, even, even as a young kid. Um, I was just absolutely fascinated by it. Uh, my, when I was growing up, my dad would tell me like bedtime stories that were like told off the top of his head. But, and like, I remember he like told me the story of like the 10 commandments, um, and which was like, you know, Moses and stuff, which is probably based on his like meager remembering of the Charlton Heston film. And I was just like fascinated. Right. And then yeah. he'd tell me other Bible stories. And then, you know, I, I was just really interested in the Bible. And I remember like, as, as a young kid, I tried to like read the Bible. I don't think I got very far. Um, and, but I, I was just, I was, I was pretty fascinated by it. I, I be, and because it was old, because it told stories of, of ancient times. And I'm not sure if I had a, a sense of how much I would later think was true and how much wasn't. I'm not sure. Um, but pretty much unquestionably, um, the, the turning point, so I wanted to be a scholar, right? I wanted to be a scholar because I wanted to be like J.R.R. Tolkien, because I was a giant Tolkien nerd even before I read Lord of the Rings. Just the idea of Tolkien really appealed to me and the idea of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and being like them. Um, and, uh, but I didn't, how did they fascinate you before you read them? Yeah. I think people had told me some, some like details about Lord of the Rings. Like when I was like, yeah, you're like, that yeah. sounds great. And I'm like, that's, that's so cool. And I, I, I had seen like the <laughs> Hobbit movie. Um, the Hobbit movie? The, 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 the yeah. So the, the Hobbit animated film from like Rankin and oh, Bass okay. from like the yeah, 1970s. Yeah, yeah. I think I just like rented that at like the, like the, the video store one day back when, you know, we rented movies, uh, physical like VHS tapes. Wow video? Uh, yeah. Uh, wow video was definitely one of them. Yes. I probably rented it from wow video. Please. I'd also go to the West coast video on uh, crystal Lake Avenue sometimes. Yeah, okay. Um, and then eventually the blockbuster video opened, uh, right in Westmont too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on, on cut the Boulevard. So yes, I, I, I definitely rented that movie several times, um, the, the Hobbit animated film, and I was just incredibly obsessed with it. My uncle, uh, he, he started telling me about Lord of the Rings, and like, there's this whole, like, I knew Lord of the Rings existed, but I'm like, you know, I was probably like seven or eight, and he told me about the, like, Gandalf encountered a, a creature that was like him, the Balrog, but like bad, and like, they're from the same, like, you know, he's a servant of the secret fire, blah, 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 and I'm just like, I had, was not ready to read it at all, but I'm just so fascinated, I'm like, there's so much depth, Tolkien is awesome, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I was just totally into that, and I wanted to be like him, and I, when I learn more about him, I'm like, well, I'm definitely going to be a college professor, and like, the whole, like, you know, you know, um, the whole idea of like, doing things that you're super interested in, and finding more and more knowledge out about it, that, that was like what I always wanted to do, and then afterwards you talk to your other interesting friends who are doing their own research on similar things at like the bar every day like and read like things that you were writing like the the, the inklings that c.s lewis and tolkien were part of um mm. yeah i wanted to be like that right and um my sister was in at the westmont theater was in the musical uh children of eden a professional production of it but it was uh, still a theater yeah yeah when i yes when it was still a theater before it was a planet fitness yeah um that's yes horrible horrible <laughs> absolutely um my parents belong to it, I believe, still, yeah. They belong to the Planet Fitness? Yeah. <laughs> and my dad saw, I believe he saw Jaws and The Exorcist there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was a big deal. Uh, Steven and has, I think it's like a betrayal that he belongs there. <laughs> I think Steven Spielberg um, had mentioned going to the Westmont Theater as a kid. And, like, as one of the things, like, that inspired him to... I think they were still a movie theater. Yeah, and that's, yeah, your, it was for your dad, apparently. Um given his age. Did your dad grow up in Haddonfield? He grew up in, in Westmont. In Westmont, okay. Yeah, in so Hattie I... Township, yeah. Yeah, so I think Steven Spielberg said that going to the Westmont Theater was one of the things that inspired him to be, like, a filmmaker. I could just be... That could be completely apocryphal. That's or it could cool. just be, like, a thing yeah. that locals... No, nah, it's a great story. But he's, yeah. Yeah, he, I mean, he's from, he's from around there. I mean, he's from Haddonfield. Um, and Westmont Theater is definitely a 
bigger theater than any theater that I know that exists in Haddonfield now. Are there any sprawled theaters in Haddonfield you can think of? I don't know if there's any. No, yeah. Um, anyway, um, yeah, so my sister was in a production of Children of Eden, and that's a, an adaptation of the basically Genesis 1 through 11, which is the primeval history. Basically, it's um, mostly the creation, the Garden of Eden story, Cain and Abel story, and then Noah's Ark story. Um, and the first act is basically creation through Cain and Abel, and the second act is the Noah's Ark story. That happens um, in 11 chapters? That happens in 11 chapters, yes. That's the, dense. You know, that's, that, is, that is packed. That is packed tight. Um, yes. Uh, God the, makes the world and gives up on it in 11 chapters. Absolutely. Destroys everything and then starts over. It's like, it's like all right, we got to have this one floating box. The word ark uh, does not mean boat. It means floating box, basically. Um, it's like big rectangle that, that is made of wood, so it floats. Um, it doesn't, you know, there's no suggestion that it's actually like a boat. Um, and uh, yeah, and then we're gonna start over. That that is what happens in that in that uh, story. But yes, so I was absolutely fascinated. The first song of the second act of that show is Generations, where they just sing the generations from Adam to Noah because they're trying to do the transition. And that's a lot of people would say that's the most boring part of the Bible. And I'm just like fascinated. I'm like the, this list of names of like people in the ancient world. I'm like, oh my yeah. gosh. Who's, is it yeah. Enoch? Or? Yeah, Enoch is one of them. Enoch is. Um, mm, uh, I remember that. Philip Pullman, who wrote uh, the Historic Materials uh, series, like trilogy, um, the uh, and he's now got the Book of Dust, which is sort of like in the same world, and he's done some stuff with that. Uh, and he's like a new atheist, and he, he wrote it to be like the anti-Narnia. He plays with that. He says that I remember he says that Enoch is the is the fifth generation from Adam. I think that's wrong. I think the math is wrong there. Um, but he does play with that by making like angels in that. But yeah, yeah that, anyway, that's so that's what I have in my mind. But I think Enoch might actually be the sixth or seventh generation from Adam. Um, he is really interesting. Enoch's really interesting because does he make weapons? Is this the guy? Is that Mark in the Bible? Him? Enoch uh, is really uh, important in that he doesn't die. He's one of the only. He's he's one of only two figures in the Old Testament that doesn't die. Um, he he and Elijah. Elijah gets taken up to heaven in the whirlwind uh, on a fiery chariot. And Enoch uh, is... Sounds just, like death. Yeah, we're, yes. We're, yeah, we're told that Enoch walks with God and he wasn't here anymore. But everyone else in the genealogy, genealogy it says he lived for such and such an amount of time and he died. And for Enoch, it doesn't say he died. It says, uh, and he walked with God and he wasn't here. Right? So, mm. and the, so people are like... And then there's this whole Enoch tradition that evolves in part in response to that, but a lot of people think it might be older than... Like, it might be as old as the Bible text. Like, there might already be stories about Enoch that lead to the whole walking with God thing. But then they obviously... There's a big debate about Enoch and what's going on in the book of Enoch, uh, or First Enoch, because there's there's more than one. But First Enoch is the one everyone focuses on. Um, that's that's and that's got a lot of other things besides Enoch in it. But the sec the second one is like the Godfather three. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's like it's like yeah. I mean, it, there there's a lot of like second and third books of the Bible that are apocryphal and only available in like the Ethiopian Bible because they just like saved everything um, and translated it all into Ethiopian and to Ge'ez is the Ethiopian language. Um, yeah, that's, um, yeah, anyway, um, anyway, yeah, so I was really interested in these generations, um, and I found this list absolutely fascinating. I'm like, you know what? I need to be a scholar because I need to be like Tolkien. The Bible's what I want to do. And that was like my focus. Like, so I was going yeah. into like a freshman high school. I'm already like, I want to be a theologian who studies the Bible. And I, I'm probably not a theologian. I'm probably more of, I mean, I, I, I 
got a master's in theology from Notre Dame. I'm, I'm a trained theologian, but my training is mostly focused on the Bible. Um, I'm, I'm probably more of a biblical scholar, um, but I like that word theologian. So I, I like what is, to, a, what is a theologian as opposed to a biblical scholar? Because you would imagine, I mean, to somebody me, somebody like me or the people I talk to would think that they're, you know, what if I have a question, <laughs> it doesn't matter what you call yourself, you can answer it. Yeah, we probably have a lot of which is lab. which is how I feel about you. Yeah, I would say that a I the, don't care what you call yourself because I know you're probably going to be able to answer my question about the Bible. Yeah, I would say that a theologian is to me is someone who like deals in systematic theology, like makes makes it all into a coherent system. And I'm someone who wrestles with this text yeah. that the more I wrestle with it, the more I realize I, how little I know about it. I feel like Socrates. I should not compare myself to Socrates, but I, I, no, yeah. um, I, I don't think I'm the wisest person in the world, but I do realize the more I work with this text, the more I realize how little I know about it. The more I realize there's more questions. The deeper you go, the more yeah. questions you get than answers. If I find myself on your 500-person jury like Socrates, mm -hmm. I, will, I will be one of the whatever that... But You'll quit me? Yeah, I will. <laughs> yeah. Because I, too, could probably be accused of blasphemy and corrupting the youth. So. Okay. <laughs> um, That's what we do in education, corrupting the youth. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> That's the business. Um, do you feel like theologians... Do you, do you think that... I'm almost picturing that theologians and historians almost look across the aisle and think that the other's sort of missing... The theologians sort of look at the historians and they're like, you're, you're kind of pounding the life out of this thing and just looking at it, you know, strictly objectively. You're not, yeah, I don't know, whatever, mm -hmm. breathing the mystery into it or something. Mm -hmm. And the historians look at the theologians and you're like, when you try to make it one coherent system, you're kind of cutting things off. Yeah, I think that a lot of that happens. And I think that to me, like, a lot of, I, I, this is unfair. I've got a lot of friends who are systematic theologians. Um, I'm not, I've done systematic theology. I'm not. A lot of it seems like, okay, I'm going to make this into a system by, like, you know, it seems like the boxes you place things in to make them systematic usually seem pretty arbitrary to me. Mm. Um, that's not to say that I don't teach theology and I and teach it um, by using my own boxes. And well, um, goddammit. Yeah, but, 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 then, but I'm always like, I'm doing this for the students so it makes sense to them. I'm not doing this because this is real. Right. Interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just an organizing principle. Yeah. It's yeah. Organized, like I mean, I do say like they're like I, I was teaching. I'm teaching Christianity and world religion now, and I say there are three fundamental doctrines of Christianity that separated from other religions, right? Um, and there are the, what? There Sorry. are three fundamental doctrines of Christianity that separate it from other world religions, um, and those doctrines are uh, the resurrection, the doctrine of the resurrection. Um, there's this dude Jesus who died. And three days later, he was alive again, right? And he's a, that's, that's the first thing. That's, that's the thing the earliest Christians, because I'm, I'm going to say that Jesus' followers during his ministry were not Christians yet. They were followers of Jesus. Um, I was talking to my co our colleague, Bill Kunkin, today, and he calls it the Jesus movement. I don't, I've not used that terminology, but I would just say these people are followers yeah. of Jesus. Uh, and they were, they were Jewish followers of Jesus. They were learning the way to be Jewish from Jesus. Right? And they're, they're something different after they believe in the resurrection. Right? We can say that they're the earliest Christians. But the earliest Christians believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead and that he was the Messiah. Right? They, that, that seems to be very early. But they don't necessarily believe other things about him. They don't believe, and that, that's where we sort of develop into that tradition is where we get to the second fundamental doctrine of Christianity, which is the doctrine of the incarnation. This dude that died and came back to life, this dude was actually God. Yeah. God as a human being. 
right? And that's, again, completely different from Judaism or Islam um, and pretty far away from other traditions. Although Hinduism with their tradition about avatars is, is a little bit like that, but I would say avatar and incarnation are pretty different ultimately because incarnation really emphasizes the total humanness of Jesus while being God. Um, and then the third doctrine is the doctrine of the Trinity, that how does this, how does this human Jesus exist as God when he's praying to God the Father and he's sending us God the Holy Spirit? And that's how we get, you know, working out sort of those fights is how we get the doctrine of the Trinity, which is the third fundamental doctrine of Christianity, right? So I'm telling people that. And that those are just me making boxes, right? Me, me labeling Christian theology. And, um, and I think that that's right, right? I think that these are the three central teachings of Christianity and everything else is peripheral to that. Um, but that, like that being said, like I'm, I'm not sure that... Um, like theologians proper, they most probably mostly would agree with me on that. Um, I'm not sure if they would say anything, but but then they they build on it and they make more boxes and they, um, I don't know. It, it, it theology seems to me to be a potentially uh, theology per se, right? Systematic theology seems to me to be a potentially wishy washy subject where people like kind like a lot of it, despite its inclination to try to pin things down. Oh yeah, no, it wants to pin things down, but. You know, it, it, it's, I don't know, it's wrestling with God, and we don't understand God, so it's fundamentally wrestling with things we don't understand. Now, that, that's very valuable, right? It's the queen of sciences. I, ex, I'm, I, I accept, right? It's wrestling with the biggest questions of all. Um, but it doesn't really have, like, great answers, because we don't understand. Right, Thomas Aquinas said it's all straw. Right, like he he uh, the, the tradition at least says that he was this great systematic theologian, and towards the end of his life, he had, he was apparently granted a glimpse of the beatific vision in his lifetime, and he's like, all the stuff I've done, worthless. That's not even approaching what God is. Best Christian theologian of all time, probably. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. <laughs> most people probably feel something akin to a hero or they feel occasionally in their life like, oh, okay, I get it. This is what it's like to find, for have, to have people around you. Uh, there it goes, the audio. Again. <laughs> to have people care about you, right? Mm -hmm. I can think of maybe two or three times where people beyond the people who are supposed to care about me cared about me. Mm -hmm. and one was I was studying abroad at the University of Leeds. Mm -hmm. It was an early quizzo night, mm -hmm. and I happened to know that Tolkien was the department chair mm -hmm. at the University of Leeds in whatever year it was. I didn't know. I didn't know what year it was, but I I guessed Tolkien, uh -huh. and I won it for the group. Mm -hmm. And that was that was my moment of. Was the department chair of like Anglo-Saxon or something? Yeah, I I think the question was probably even more broad. It was yeah. just like was an English department chair. Yeah, and I was like, I would imagine that they're probably flexing that yeah. Tolkien. <laughs> Was here, yeah. But I always think of like because he's in Yorkshire, or uh -huh. the Shire, uh -huh. Yorkshire. Uh -huh. um, back to all you were saying. Yes. Uh, how how is it that the Bible? Um, I've got two questions, and you can decide yeah. which one you want to jump into. But how is it that the Bible contains two religions within it? And you might even say that it contains more. And then two. How important is it to our understanding that Jesus, that he and all his disciples were Jewish? Yeah. You okay. can cho choose one of those big forks. 
Yeah, well, I, I can, feel like we were kind of tiptoeing on the Yeah, I, I, can, I, can, I can do, I can do, uh, I pro probably can do both of those. Um, okay, so, um, the, the, I think your first question is one I can answer, like, relatively quickly. Um, essentially, Christianity is an outgrowth of Judaism, right? And so it's, mm, Christianity and Judaism, modern Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, which is the majority of Judaism in the world, there's also such a thing as Karyat Judaism, we can... You know, that's a little bit. That's a, like another sibling. For the next right. time you're on. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's another sibling, and it's it's uh, it's a uh, it's less. It's like in the modern world, it's less of a big deal. So most of the Judaism in the world is rabbinic Judaism, but rabbinic Judaism is not the Judaism of the Second Temple. It's 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 had some it's some pretty profound evolution and focuses. The biggest ch change, the most abrupt change, is the loss of the temple. Right? Judaism was about the temple. The temple was the center. The center was the temple was where God was on earth. The temple was destroyed by the Romans in seventy. Um, and Judaism could not be what it was after that. It was um, destroyed by the Romans when? By the Romans in 70 AD. Okay. Um, yeah, so uh, Judaism had to change, and it really shifted. The, the Pharisaic tradition, and um, this is probably, a, I don't think it's too contentious. There's probably, there's going to be scholars who disagree with this statement. Um, Pharisaic Judaism is probably the basis of rabbinic Judaism. The Pharisees, who were already like studying the text pretty intensely, they kind of won because the Sadducees and the other groups who were totally reliant on the temple, they didn't have anything without the temple or they didn't have very much without the temple. The Pharisees had the Torah, right? They had the, the whole set of scriptures, so the, the Torah and the Nevi'im, the, the, the law and the prophets, Jesus would say, right, uh, in the Greek. Um, and that was... Uh, like, like that was that was a big deal, right? So, so Judaism had to sort of go in one direction. Now, there's also a sect of Judaism emerging at the time, which is what Christianity is. It's a sect of Judaism, and all the earliest Jews are all the earliest Christians are Jews, right? There, it seems like relatively early on, Christianity seems to be more open to converts and more proselytizing than most forms of Judaism. But it's definitely a sect of Judaism that's open to converts. Um, there seems to be a split. Christianity is a sect of Judaism? Yes, absolutely. Right. That is open to converts. That is open to converts. Uh, and not just open to converts, but probably actively recruiting converts from the Gentile world. Uh, Where Judaism wasn't. Whereas Judaism wasn't. There's there's probably some some Jewish missionaries at some point who, who are right. like into like this, but it's not a, it's not a big deal. Right. Whereas the the Christian movement seems to be open to converts um, pretty in, like pretty like from the very beginning, uh, at least to some degree. And then you have Paul, who was just like, I'm going to recruit everybody to this. This is the good news. I'm going sure. to spread it to everybody. But I don't think Paul innovated the idea of being more open than Judaism had been to converts. I think it's already significantly more open than most forms of Judaism have been. So, but yes, the earliest Christians are unquestionably Jews. And there's a big fight in early Christianity about whether you have to convert to Judaism to convert to Christianity. And ultimately, the position that you don't, right, you can be a Christian without being Jewish, wins. Uh, and that, that happens sometime around the time that Christians are kicked out of the synagogue for keeping talking about this guy, Jesus, who was just a criminal executed by the Romans. Like, how, like why would you... That's basically blasphemy. Saying that this dude's God? No. You're, you're gone. Go do your church thing. The synagogues are for the Jews. You're not Jewish anymore. How much, how much of that uh, recruitment initiative is a spinoff of the idea that the Messiah... The Jewish idea that the Messiah would bring... Gentiles and Jews, Jews and not Jews, into the fold. Yeah. Um, traditions about the Messiah are um, not completely clear um, from the Second Temple period. There seem to be a lot of different expectations. 
Um, certainly a lot of few, few people expected a Messiah that was just like what Jesus was, which is one of the reasons why so few Jews converted to Christianity and became, uh, after a generation or two, much more of a Gentile religion and wasn't a sect of Judaism anymore. Um, uh, I think that certainly the idea that the Messiah is going to restore the whole world to what it's supposed to be is part of Second Temple Judaism. I think that that's definitely there. Um, I think if you talk to a lot of um, religious Jews today who were not trying to be diplomatic, they were just trying to say what they actually thought, I think you'd have less of an emphasis on that, uh, on, on the role of reaching out to like all the Gentiles too. I think the idea is the Jewish Messiah is going to restore the world to like what it's supposed to be. But like primarily he's the Jewish Messiah. Primarily he's going to restore the Jews what they're supposed to be. He's going to restore uh, the people who have been promised the land. Like God gave this, promised this land to Abraham. He's going to restore the descendants of Abraham to the land they've been promised, right? That's his, that's his main role. But in the process, he's going to restore the whole world to what it's supposed to be. Right? So I think that a lot of Jews would say that um, the, the, the Messiah's role from the perspective of the Gentiles is, is not what Christians will later imagine Jesus' role is, which is literally saving all, all of creation from, uh, from a state of sin, um, and, and especially human beings who, are, who have a special status within creation. Um, yeah, so I, I think I would say, um, and then the, the fact that Jesus was Jewish, um, absolutely significant. The earliest, the Christianity starts out as Jewish tradition. Christianity never lets go of the fact that God had a special connection with the Jewish people. There might be some, some degree of supersessionism in early Christianity, which would say that plan, uh, maybe it was always supposed to lead to Jew Jesus, um, but maybe it was supposed to lead to Jesus, and then all the Jews are supposed to become Christian, and they didn't, and therefore the Jewish message is obsolete. Jesus fulfilled all their promises. Um, that's, that's problematic today to you know, uh, like, that, that seems pretty anti-Jewish today to, like, say, like, oh, yeah, Judaism's replaced. Those people are all wrong. And most Christians won't say that now. But it seems like the early church might have. But that there, there might be a degree of resentment because they were kicked out of the synagogue also. And they're like, you, you, you don't want us to be Jewish? Fine, we're not Jewish. Um, you guys are all wrong. That, that might be a thing. Like, like that, that rivalry seems to be, the, the, like, some of the source of the anti-Semitism in the Gospel of Matthew, which is by far the most Jewish of the Gospels. Mm -hmm. Matthew is very into his Judaism, uh, and also, like, says the worst things about the Jews, um, which probably is in part because he's, he's, he's really salty about being kicked out because he was passionate about his Judaism and he right. thought to be in his Jewish community. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. That'd be like if you loved yeah. working where you work and then you were fired. Yeah, exactly. You'd say that you'd be, like, you'd say a lot worse things than someone who was fired and really kind of looking for a way out. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what does it mean to be an apocalyptic Jew, and, and what does that have to do with Jesus? Like, why do I keep hearing that? I'm, I'm uh, sort of knee-deep in Bart Ehrman's works yeah. that are across the room from us. Uh, yeah. what, what does it mean to be an apocalyptic Jew? Okay, so um, I think we first get it in the book of Daniel, um, this, this idea of apocalypticism. Um, and... Literally means like uh, literally means like revelation and re like revealing like pulling the cover off of something. Yeah, pulling yeah, that's back a, the veil. Pulling back the veil. Yes. So like like oh man like or, or opening the curtain and seeing like what the yeah. Right. So it, it's it's revealing something that otherwise people don't normally have access to. That's and that's this element of. Um, so not necessarily the end of the world, not nuclear. Like no no no. Uh, we no. always picture like. The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, yeah, no, no. It's not necessarily sort of... We're not leading to a... Like, the apocalypse doesn't lead to post-apocalypticism. No, it could be like um, in a hop. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. That 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 itself might be kind of a, a little bit of a of an outgrowing of, of an outgrowth of like some certain like Protestant ideas about like the tribulation times and the stuff. Rapture. Yeah, which are based on a reading of the Book of Revelation, but have not we're not really emphasizing the tradition. The like the, the Catholic tradition would say, and probably most Christian traditions before you started reading the Bible real literally, um, the parts of the Bible that that always had like. Um, Kind of like a like a, the church would be the key for understanding what this can possibly mean, um, and then once once they stop using the church and they start just reading it on their own, um, you you get lots of different ideas in the Protestant Reformation. Um, but like which Conkin yeah. points to, yeah, and he says it's unpopular. He's like that. He's like, look, I'm supposed to be all for literacy and people mm-hmm. reading like the Bible, but he said that that is going to necessarily. And I think Ehrman yeah. pointed to something like this, but that's going to necessarily beget a bunch of spinoffs that are yeah. potentially wrong. Yes, yeah, that's the issue. And especially if this, I mean, the question is like, how wrong, how bad is it being wrong about this incredibly sacred text that has the message from God? Uh, how important is it being right about the message from, of God, right? And uh, kind of surprisingly, a lot of Protestants who are the ones that are opening this up to this interpretation yeah. are also the ones that are going to be most serious about getting it right. But however I read it is right. However you read it, if you don't read it like me, it's wrong. Right. Which is, yeah. So you uh, said that sentence twice. Did, yeah. did you mean that to, to sort of portray what they're saying, or do you believe that, that that's the message from God? Um, if you don't mind me asking. Uh, the Bible is really hard. Um, the as a, as a matter of faith, uh, I submit to the church that the Bible is the word of God, uh, and every bit of it conveys God's truth to us, right? Um, pretty obviously to me, that's not always literal truth. Um, and therefore, what that means and how we access it is, um, is something that's, that's really, really challenging and definitely open to debate from my perspective, right? Um, in my own work, I mostly treat the Bible as a historical document because... I don't know how to get the proper message out of it, um, which makes me more worried about the people who have more confidence than I do and less knowledge than I do. Sure, um, like in, me. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, if you just are like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start my own religion based on the Bible, right? With 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 relatively limited knowledge, I would have some pretty intense reservations. Sure. Yes. That, yeah, and rightly so. Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of what happened in the Protestant Reformation. Interesting. Yeah. So now, the, 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 Luther was a brilliant biblical scholar. Calvin is a brilliant theologian who knows what he's talking about. Uh, a lot of the readers of the Bible after them don't know what they knew. And I, I think Calvin's very wrong. I think Luther had some good points, but ultimately I'm Catholic and I think he was more wrong than right. Well, where he disagreed from the Catholic Church, he was more wrong than right. Um, indulgences are problematic. He's right about that. Um, I don't think that, you know, clerical celibacy is a particularly important thing. Um, I don't, I, I mean, I don't, I don't really, like, it, it seems like a tradition that we have more than something that's fundamental to, like, Christianity. But um, many did, right? Yeah, 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 uh, many did. Um, I, have, I have a question yeah. coming, coming down the pike about Essenes. Yes. Oh, yes. So the, yeah. But, but before we do that, the, the apocalyptic Yes, Jews. the apocalyptic Jews. Okay. So Jesus seems to be, um, okay. A lot of this comes from Bart Ehrman. Um, so this, this, we're going to get into, um... Bart Ehrman and Vesa Aslan and people who wrote books that I've read. Um, well, you know yeah. what's funny is I, I, I've just dipped my toe in this, started yeah. dipping my toe into this stuff, and 
Bill Conkin, who I had mm-hmm. on, hands me a book mm-hmm. called The Christians as the Romans Saw Them, about essentially the letters of Pliny. Yeah. I'm sure that's plenty. Not, plenty. Yeah, I'm sure that's not how you say it. Mm-hmm. And then and then I'm reading Ehrman, and he references that guy's work. And I was yeah. like, it's funny. I'm just dipping my toe. Yeah. You'd think you could be a whole ocean away from yeah. the guys that people care about, and yet they're kind of bumping into each yeah, other. Yeah, um, that's partially an effect of um, a relatively limited corpus of the number of people who reference Christianity early. Yeah. Um, we have a letter from Trajan. We have, we have plenty talking about it. Uh, Josephus um, at least is relevant. Um, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a few other people. Um, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, you're going to run across the stuff, the, the text that people who are studying this stuff wrestle with relatively early because there's not that many we have. Right. The thing they're going to do is just get better better and better yeah. at interpreting those, that limited information that we have. Um, yeah, I've read like three oh, books. And also, I've read yeah. like three or four books and the third one references the first one. I'm like, yeah. oh my God. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, and there's there's a lot of people doing this, but they're, they're you know, dealing with, uh, you know, a small corpus of information. The New Testament's not a very long work, and the stuff outside the New Testament that references Jesus really early on is probably shorter collectively than, you know, the Gospels. Uh, not the whole New Testament, the Gospels. Um, so, I mean... The works themselves are longer, but the parts that reference Jesus are short. Um, so there, there's not uh, that, that that leads some people to suggest that Jesus is a is like a mythological made up figure, and that's a major mistake. I think that's that's just crazy. Um, I think that Jesus we, we've got limited documentation outside of the right. of the Bible, but the documentation in the Bible, uh, based on how I would analyze it, it's almost impossible to come away thinking that Jesus. There's people who have an agenda talking about him, who think he's the Messiah and stuff, and God incarnate. But the suggestion that he is a made-up guy, that's that's dumb. I mean, to, I, yeah. to defend yeah. your point, not, not yeah. that it necessarily needs it, but because you are a Catholic, mm-hmm. um, people might dismiss that a yeah. little bit. Like, of course, he's going to think that's dumb. Bart Ehrman, who I'm reading, and in my very limited interpretation, is kind of like a jaded ex-believer yes he's he has dealt with that question time and time again in the limited stuff that i've read he also thinks it's dumb he also thinks it's dumb he's like no he's definitely real he's like and i think what one of his book is um how jesus became god Mm -hmm. and and it's very interested in that question of like no the guy was real but but how he became god is a question he's interested in or how he how he essentially became exalted by the people yeah. that followed him. And how people, people and if you're a believer, how he became recognized as God. Because right. it, it, it's it, one thing that I agree with Bart Ehrman about with respect to that is certainly like the earliest Christians did not have that tradition that he was God yet. Not necessarily, yeah, the resurrection comes first. Um, I think the tradition of the incarnation of Jesus as Lord and God, uh, at least in some sections, segments of the Christian community, does come early, but it's not immediate. Okay. Yeah. So I keep interrupting. Oh, it's apocalypticism. Well, I, I can I can give you where this is going if yeah. you want to just carry it down the road. Yeah. I want I want to ask about apocalypticism. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which I just said for the first time. Yes. The Essenes. Yeah. And the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay. Now <laughs> you might be talking for a while, and I'm okay with that, but that's where it's headed. Okay. So apocalypticism one. Um, uh, yeah, this is this is revelation. Basically, this is people people seeing what's going to come, what God's plan is. That, that's what's revealed is God's plan for what's going to happen, and God's plan is going to happen because God's plan is inevitably going to happen. We might have some say in some some of the sort of moderate details, 
because human human free will matters. But ultimately, God's plan is gonna is gonna come to fruition. So that's and, and you're saying that just maybe to be clear, you're saying that that's what the book. That's that's what apocalypticism is to me, okay. right? Is is revealing in advance God's plan, which will happen. Okay. Right. So that's 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 what we mean by apocalypticism. Uh, apocalyptic Judaism. Um, we have we have limited sources to what exactly was believed um, in Jesus, and and through the language of Jesus, a lot of scholars have suggested. And I think this is reasonable that there seem to be two figures that probably are separate originally: the Son of Man. Which the Book of Daniel talks about, the and the Messiah. Okay. Yeah, this with the yeah, so the son of, yeah, son of uh, the Messiah is the the son of David, right? Yeah, so I've heard this play where it's yeah. the son of man, son of God. I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't actually um, know what it means. So the son, of God, yeah, so son of man. I'm not sure. Daniel talks about it, and it makes no sense to me, right? But like, Jesus references it too. Jesus seems he talks about the son of man, and he seems to think that he's the son of man, right? But he seems to think he's the son of man, maybe more than he thinks he's the Messiah. I've gotten the sense, yeah. I thought the Son of Man was like, were almost like, you know, this is kind of a really modern interpretation, but I almost got the sense that Jesus was like, I'm the Son of Man and so are you. Interesting. That, um, like, that like, we are, at, like this sort of one race thing. Yeah. And that's obviously like a really modern valence, but like... That's obviously not a slant of it I've thought before. Uh, um... I think that they're, they're, they're so that term son of man clearly implies someone from the human race. Uh, right. That's yeah. What, that's so like, like like I don't I'm I'm not sure what the Hebrew is. It's probably Ben Adam, um, the son of well, the son of, of humanity, right? Yeah. The, the human. And Adam um, is man. Right? And, and and this would be like the person who has like fully realized humanity, uh, which is what God called us all to do. Mm. And maybe we're all being inducted to it, and He's the first, which is actually what Christians believe about the resurrection that. The, Jesus is the one who Jesus is the one who was raised from the dead, but we're all he's the first fruits of the resurrection that all of us are invited into through Christ. Right? So that's that's Christian theology. That's 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 a really interesting idea that we are all called to be the Son of Man. Um, very interesting suggestion, Kevin. Um, yeah. Um, uh, the Messiah. I'm sorry, I'm new at this. So yeah. I'm, I'm, feel free to put me in my place. No, that's I, that's really interesting. I had never thought of it. I, I think that's that's a really you know. Um, I think it's a new, kind of a new spin on it, but I think that that's really, really evocative um, and actually really, really um, interesting to think about and, and uh, potentially correct, um, depending on how wishy-washy you're willing to be in your theology. Um, I'm yeah. willing to be very wishy-washy. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's what I mean. Like, like a lot of this stuff is, is, like, is, is like made up because it's a good metaphor, and then we like run with the metaphor, and that's yeah. what theology um, is. Running. Yeah. yeah, and that metaphor is a great metaphor because yeah. it does resonate with certain ideas that Christians absolutely believe about the resurrection. Um, yeah, so it, it does seem like the Messiah and the Son of Man seem to be separate figures, right? And some people would suggest that they're the same. Uh, Jesus is going to be recognized by his followers as the Messiah. There's debate about whether he thought he was the Messiah himself. And some people who think the Son of Man and the Messiah are recognized as separate figures think that they're going to play separate roles, so that Jesus is going to play the role of bringing about the Messiah and not necessarily being the Messiah. I'm not sure how much I believe that. Um, as a believing Christian, I think I think that Jesus knew what his mission was and therefore knew he was the Messiah. That's my perspective, probably. Um, the question of how comprehensive is his knowledge being that he's God, right? Like, like he's fully God, but fully human. So is he human in our limitations, like limited knowledge while being God? Or is 
because he's God, he doesn't have limited knowledge. Uh, or because he's God, he could give himself access to all of it, but he doesn't because it's important that he takes on our humanity. And those, you know, those are crazy questions. That, um, uh, you know, because he has taken on our humanity. That's a big fundamental part of Christianity. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So apocalyptic. So he seems to believe. He seems to identify himself with this apocalyptic figure, um, and his movement seems to be pointing to the coming of the kingdom of God. And the coming of the kingdom of God. That seems to be the number one thing that Jesus preached seems to be an eschatological situation, right? Like an end-of-the-world situation. The kingdom of God eschatological is... Eschatological means end-of-the-world? Uh, end uh, eschatological means of or relating to the last things. Um, the last... <laughs> last things is the end of the world, yeah. <laughs> yes. um, it's not the end of the world. It's the things that happen right before yeah, the Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's the last things before the <laughs> I picture myself like sort of like uh, wash, like washing dishes. Yes. And then all of a sudden, like, you hear the... Tr like, oh, it's just over? Yes. Or, I mean, I think that, like, maybe you hear the trumpet and you're like, oh my God, it's Jesus. He's back. <laughs> gotta gotta yeah. keep, gotta look busy. So yeah. it's like, yeah. <laughs> so he knows I'm working hard. All of us are doing a really good job of looking super busy. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. Um, We're ready. <laughs> Jesus, come come back now. I'm, yeah. I am ready. For we you. can't possibly get any busier. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think that people are like more burned out and stressed. So we're yeah. all obviously working hard, even if we feel lazy at the same time. Yeah. Isn't that crazy how we're like burning ourselves out while we feel incredibly lazy? Yeah. That's like the, the way the modern world is. Well, you said earlier, you, yeah. you, you mentioned sort of like looking back mm -hmm. in time and sort of thinking that they um, would have had a hard, I forget how you put it, I don't, that they would have had a hard time living here or vice versa, that we would have had a hard time living there. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that they would have had a hard time. I mean, they well, would that's have, a, well yeah, hold they, on. I yeah. was going to ask. What if you flip it? Right? Well, do you? Well, I think that they. Well, I think it, actually figure out the modern world would be really hard for them. Actually, well, exactly. Probably, yeah. And if you take, especially, uh, uh, you know, this is this sounds like a like a Ricky Gervais movie or yeah. something. But like, if you take one of those people of the, the distant past that you imagine being sort of great and thinking about deep things, mm -hmm. putting them fully equipped to do it here mm -hmm. with the temptation to think about really deep things, yeah, I imagine that would be really difficult. I think so. I think they would incredibly they, different. They would be. They. I mean, the world around them would look like magic. Everything would look magic to them, and they would. Uh, well, I'm even thinking like, think about somebody who's deeply contemplative. Yeah. Who who thinks that that's an important thing to do, and yet sees around them a, a utter lack of contemplation. Yeah. I think that on itself. That would give like like, like, like forget the gizmos and yeah. Like, yeah forget like figuring out the phone. Let's yeah. assume that they they're immediately equipped to figure out cell phones and modern world, but they are just more contemplative than us. Could be really difficult. There's a degree to which this world would look dystopian to them. Probably they wouldn't have that word, but it would probably look like like they have all these like crazy powers that we don't have, or we didn't have where I was from, and it's ruined them, or or at least it's not helping them. I mean, think about yeah. the people that you think are really yeah. contemplative. Yeah. Who would have slotted in really well to your fantasy of the past. Yeah. Who are looking at this world yeah. as if it's dystopian. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. And we're we're all just, I mean, at least I'm someone who's probably like, you know, I'm kind of stressed. Could, could, <laughs> could use a little bit more money. <laughs> but, like, I don't know. I'm, 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 uh, I'm inured to the world as it is. Um, I don't, I, I can't. I'm not someone who was like, I would actually rather live there. I don't think that I am that, even if yeah. I like yearn for the experience of it. Yeah. What's that Buddhist sentiment, this world exactly as it is, or something like that? Something like that, yeah. <laughs>
Um, should we even try to get to the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah, yeah, no, we, we can, um, all right, so we can... I'm going to promise to stop talking until you say something about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, so here we go. All right, so uh, Christian apocalypticism, uh, sorry, Jewish apocalypticism, that's that's actually, I've pretty much covered a lot of what I could. It's, it's we don't know that much about it. Um, now, um, the apocalypse, now, one thing we do have as an apocalypse sect is the Dead Sea Scrolls sect, uh, the Qumran sect. Uh, who may or may not be Essenes, as I told you um, the other day. Um, I they're Essenes, right? The question that I have is whether they're you. Th- you think that? Know that? I mean, would people just Josephus with you? is talking about a group that's basically doing that, right? I don't. If Josephus saw those, he knows there's people in the desert doing and stuff. Maybe can you just explain what you're talking about? Yes, yeah, Essenes are like ascetic sort of pseudo-mystical Judaism, forms of Jews who are not in power and are rejecting the mainstream of Judaism of their day and like going and retreating to the desert and living a something like a monastic life. We, they don't actually live anything like... like they, they live an ascetic life, we could say. And some people think that Jesus may... That... Yeah, that Jesus and or John the Baptist um, may have been influenced by a scene culture, right? Uh, Jesus, yeah, could have been a scene themselves? Is that too far? Um... Yeah, no, they definitely could have been Essenes themselves at some point. Jesus seems to be more reaching out to the broader yeah, he wandered population. away from the community. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Um, but yeah, yeah, I think that it's definitely possible. Um, the John the Baptist seems like an Essene. Um, mm. A lot of people think that John the Baptist, I mean, if you go if you go and watch the English presentation at Qumran, which is geared towards uh, Christians, they have like a, like a video that they lead you into a, an old room, uh, like in... Like, it's like a semi-restored old room from the Qumran community, and they make you watch a video. And the video in Hebrew doesn't have any suggestion of John the Baptist, but the video in English is like, and there was this guy who left our community to go, and he was really into water rituals, and his name was John. Uh, it's like, they're clearly yeah, talking about John the Baptist. Like, like, uh, but and that, that's, that's completely made up. Didn't wear um, shoes, ate honey. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? But that fits in with what we know about the Essenes a little bit. Um, I, I, yeah, I've done the Baptist having some kind of a scene background or doing something like the Essenes. Maybe he doesn't was never part of the Essene community. Maybe he just like started his own Essene community, right? Like maybe like the people who are following him, they're being Essenes with him rather than him like learning from other Essene groups. Maybe he's just like, oh, like I'm also going to the wilderness and doing my own thing, right? Like that's possible. Maybe and Jesus, you know, his origins are being baptized by John, which is, uh, one of the things that is almost certainly true about Jesus, um, because it's, uh, it meets the criterion of embarrassment. One of the uh, we can talk about the, anyway. You, the, that's historical Jesus scholarship. So there's there's I, I go with John Meyer, who is my own teacher, um, and he basically says there's five criteria for basically reconstructing historical Jesus. The first is criteria. Sorry, yeah, five criteria for basically reconstructing who the historical Jesus was. And what is what what does that even mean? Um, there's five criteria for... Yeah, so, so we think the Gospels have a religious agenda, right? And they're trying to convey sure. what the community well, feels about Jesus and not necessarily... And, and, and they want to have the historical Jesus be part of it, right. but sometimes they're going to make up stories but about Jesus just because yeah. those stories convey something about Jesus that is not, like, that's not literally true what happened, but it tells you something about Jesus that none of the historical events would, right? And so those things are going to be in the Gospels. So you want to, therefore, um, say some stuff uh, like you, you want to basically figure out, well, what's the stuff that's made up about Jesus and what's the stuff that's literally true about Jesus? And the first criterion Meyer points to is the criterion embarrassment, which is which Meyer did not invent, but it's one he thinks is definitely legitimate. And the idea is, stuff in the New Testament, uh, the that's a Christian work, right? It's works by people who like Jesus. And it's in that, like, 
embarrasses Jesus or embarrasses the Christian community about Jesus, they would make it up, right? The only reason it would be there in the text is because it's historically true. Well, and the criterion of embarrassment basically says, okay, the being baptized by John subordinates Jesus in some way to John, right? Um, and we actually see the later gospels stepping away from that, right? So in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is baptized by John, the earliest gospel, almost every scholar agrees. Um, yeah. In the Gospel of Math, of Luke, Jesus is baptized, uh, what, but we don't we don't hear about who baptized him. I think that's Luke. Uh, John, I think John doesn't have a baptism at all. Um, he's just like in the desert, um, and John is baptizing around them, and but Jesus didn't get baptized. Um, and in the Gospel, Ships in the night. yeah, in the Gospel, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, John does baptize Jesus, but he gets down on his knees first and says, I'm not worthy to baptize you, you should baptize me, right? So a lot of scholars will say, no, 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 like, 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 like that's, that's some couching, because the yeah, Jewish yeah, community is yeah, uncomfortable yeah. with the fact that John baptized Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Matthew, <laughs> like, yeah. So, this is the same pen that went back and wrote the <laughs> the three wise men in this. Yes, yeah, <laughs> exactly. You've got to make Jesus look as good as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? There's a star so, in the sky. Exactly, yeah. Um, because we're embarrassed. And then that's it, right? He couldn't have just so, been a really yeah. good guy. Yeah, yeah. So the, there's no reason to just make up that Jesus was baptized by John unless it happened. That's the idea, right? So this is an embarrassing thing to Christian community because it subordinates their founder to the founder of another sect because there were still followers of John the Baptist who did not become Christian, or at least really early on. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Um, and there, there's probably, there might still be some in the world. There are not that many, though. Um, who, who would still say, no, John the Baptist was our, was the guy. He might have been the Messiah, he might have been the guy that was bringing about the Messiah, but whatever. Um, he's the one that we follow. Um, yeah, so um, so that's the criteria of embarrassment. There's, there's um, he, he gives um, four other criteria. The, cri uh, the criterion of discontinuity. He basically says that if something is not important to the later Christian community and is not, not part of Judaism beforehand, there's no reason, and Jesus does it, then there's no reason to suggest that Jesus does that except that he actually did it, right? Because Christians don't have an agenda of making Jesus do it, and they're not getting it from earlier Judaism because it doesn't need part of Judaism. So the only reason to say Jesus did it is that Jesus did it. That's the criterion of discontinuity. You don't have any problem with that? Um, that's not perfect, but... Yeah. Um, I, I write every morning, mm -hmm. and I make shit up all the time. Yeah. That's what I do. For, yeah, for, yeah. So the, the idea so is... So to think that it's like, well, it had to have been, it's like, well, no, like it's... Sit and meditate. Yeah. Right. Some crazy stuff comes up. Right. Yeah. So that that was yeah. Uh, so that that is a weaker criterion than the criterion of embarrassment. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, the next would be the criterion of multiple attestation. That basically is is when two independent sources that protects itself immediately because it's just a, it's a yeah terribly long name. Yes. So multiple attestation basically says that the more independent sources say something happened, the more likely it is to have happened. And that's everyone's thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Four individual accounts. Yeah. He, he's the most publicized. Jesus yeah. is the most publicized, or he's like the most written about person of the first century, whatever. So four accounts, but two of them are dependent on Mark. Like Matthew and Luke are dependent on Mark, but they have material that's not in Mark. Interesting. Um, so, uh, and then John seems to be mostly separate, totally right? Separate, yeah. um, but Paul also knows about him. Um, and knew his brother. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're Jesus is a historical figure. That's, it's a, it's a dumb perspective to not believe that. But yes, so that's multiple attestation. And at the very least, the criterion of multiple attestation suggests that if two things, two sources that don't have something in common um, say something, it's got to go back to a common source, which is before both of them, right? So at least gets us closer in time to Jesus, right. um, at the very least. 
Okay. Then the last is the criteria. Uh, well, we have two more. The criterion of coherence, which basically says that if um, basically once we build up a critical mass of the kind of things that Jesus does, then things that are more like those things are more likely to be historical. Yeah. The things that are less likely to be like those things are, are, are less like those things are less likely to be historical. It's like the opposite of the discontinuity. One. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's so well, well, yeah, but. It, that one only works after we've got a critical mass of stuff, okay. right? We, like the stuff that's really weird at first. Yeah. We there, there's no reason to believe that. Um, well, actually, I guess this yeah, would suggest I, that. I have, that a, is I have the a hard case. time with that. That's yeah. a, I've never heard of these criteria. And the so last criterion that uh, Meyer insists on is that this is kind of like a like a like checking the Jesus we reconstruct. However, we reconstruct Jesus, we know as a historical fact that he's going to be rejected by the people and executed by the Romans. So a Jesus that was like a hippy-dippy guy that no one's going to be, have problems with, that can't be historical. Jesus has to piss people off enough that they kill him. Um, How much would that really have taken? Because I'm reading Pliny or Pliny or whatever his name is. Like, we're just killing people left and oh, right. This yeah, is the Romans. Left, right, and yeah. center. I mean, it wouldn't have taken much in yeah, my estimation. Yeah, at least someone had to think that he was a danger to the Roman state. Right. Yeah. But they could... Yeah. Um, is that a danger? Are you sure? Uh, they didn't a legitimate danger to Rome, I, I or mean, just an opposition? Because even even if you're not a threat, but an opposition, they're like, okay. they executed people for sedition, for like like the the, the Romans would kill you because you were uh, a potential like if they thought it was going to go anywhere, but they thought like you know you're an asshole, we have to kill, they'll kill you. Um, right. But like they at least have to they, they have to have it you brought to their attention, right? Some crazy guy in the street corner that no one's listening to, they won't they won't execute him. Probably, probably. I mean. If a random Roman soldier's like, actually, I'm going to kill you, he'll probably get off with impunity. But not, the governor just doesn't, he's, he's just like, I don't care. But to order an actual yeah. crucifixion would have actually been an, like an ordeal. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, um, I mean, they usually didn't crucify people without a trial, right? Okay. Um, now, you'd be crucified for other things. You'd be crucified for like burglary or like assault or something. And they, they would do that, especially if you weren't a Roman citizen. Um, but no one says Jesus like beat people up. Okay. Um, so the historical Jesus, the Essenes, and we have approximate cause, right? Jesus flipped over tables in the temple. That's a scene. That's making a scene. Interesting, right? So a lot of people are like, "That's what got him actually killed." Whoa. Yeah. And not being called the Son of God. I don't think the Romans care that much, right? They're like, "This guy's crazy cult leader." As long as people don't listen to him and rebel against us, it's right? Whatever. But the Pharisees weren't part of this at all like hey we're upset with this guy oh i, I mean they would have had more power. so the, the the sadducees are the ones who according to the gospels or at least the, the sanhedrin the jewish authorities who are mostly sadducees in jerusalem at the time um are the ones who um there's, there's probably pharisees involved but they're not the really important ones um they probably see jesus as at least a threat to the status quo um and execute him as, but I, I would say that they're primarily an apparatus of the Roman state. They are they are standing for the status quo because the status quo gives them power. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Historical Jesus. Okay. Yeah. Dead Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay. Yeah. Essenes. Um, so I gave you historical Jesus. I gave you the criteria. Um, I, I mean, I would say Jesus was someone who was influenced by at least sort of wilderness ascetic traditions. We could say that that's a scene. Um, that might not be the community that Josephus is talking about when he mentions the Essenes, but Jesus is influenced by that idea, like clearly. Um, 
I, I think so. I think Jesus is kind of a wandering ascetic informed by these wilderness ascetics, which we can call the scenes. Uh, whether he's influenced by the Qumran community, which created the Dead Sea Scrolls, that's an open question. It depends on how, like, whether you think that there's a bunch of groups of Essenes or whether you think there's one. Um, you seem to think that there's many, if I understood you the other day correctly. Yeah, I would say that, the, to me, the Qumran community is probably a group of Essenes. They might have been the most established group of Essenes, right? Um, there might have been, like, a, like a lot of Essenes that, that were more wandering and less fixed. Uh, that seems like a possibility to me. Um, like if John the Baptist is in a scene, he might be a wandering scene. Uh, when Josephus talks about the Essenes, he does seem to be talking about like an established community, or at least established maybe established communities, which might suggest that there is like like he might be talking about Qumran, which is which where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Um, uh, okay, now the Dead Sea Scrolls are a collection of scrolls by this Qumran community, which I think was a scene, which may or may not have been a scene according to the scholars you're talking about. But, you know, anyway. They had collections of texts, right? These texts were important to them. Most of them were, uh, a lot of them were biblical, right? They have copies, of, they've, they've, at least fragments were found in the, in the, in the caves of Qumran of every single scroll of the Hebrew Bible except the book of Esther. There's no New Testament fragments. These are not Christians. Um, and they have their, a bunch of their own, like, literature. Right. They have like the community rule. They have this apocalyptic war scroll. They have a bunch of peshers, um, which are like analyses, like almost like apocalyptic analyses of biblical texts. Um, there's pesher from Genesis. There's yeah. These are um, these are things that the community had because they're probably studying texts and trying to understand God's revelation. They're probably an apocalyptic sect of Essenes, probably, hmm. um, who think that God's going to God's eventually going to restore the rightful heads of the temple to the charge of the temple, right? Um, which is what they think. They might have thought their leader was the Messiah um, or, or not. I, I don't know if that word appears very much in the Dead Sea Scrolls um, or it's the trolls that are outside the Bible. Um, but yeah, anyway, they, they, when, when they, oh man, sorry. Oh, there goes the audience. Yeah, when, the, uh, when the community um, was leaving, maybe during the Roman Revolt, uh, they and they, they have to get away because they don't want to get killed by the Romans, which probably happened. They probably were killed by the Romans or, or at least captured by the Romans, whatever. Um, they hid their sacred texts in a bunch of caves, right? In these uh, vases, right? Yeah, caves in... Uh, in Clay so, Yeah, ceramic containers. Yeah. Um, so ceramic containers to like seal them in uh, to keep them safe from the elements, I guess, and then put them in caves Thank that are built into did. basically the cliffside of, of this site, Qumran. And Qumran is really probably like, I don't know, a half mile walk from the cliffside. It looks real close, but it's like one of these, it's a big cliff. Um, and then um, probably a mile, two mile walk from the Dead Sea. Although I'm not sure that the, the Dead Sea would have been exactly the same size of shape as it is now uh, during their time. Um, the geology is complicated. Interesting. And there's a lot less water than there was. Um, because in the So modern, it might have butted up right against it. Close. It might have been pretty close, yeah. Um, Dead Sea Scrolls aren't... The Dead Sea is not a source of drinking water, of potable water. So um, one really matters. Yeah, so I mean, I guess you could wash yourself in it, but then you'd be really salty. Um, if you if you walk out of the... You, you go bathing in the Dead Sea and then walk out and let yourself air dry, you'll be white. Interesting. You'll be covered in salt. It is so salty. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's not the most convenient water for drinking. Although if there's more water, maybe it's a little bit less salty, but it's still incredibly salty. 
Um, it's so salty that there's like salt crystals forming on the bottom. They they can't all dissolve in the water um, of the of the Dead Sea. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, so they before they leave their community for whatever reason, probably Roman problems, um, issues with the Romans during the rebellion, they conceal their scrolls in a bunch of caves that are in a cliffside that's, that's they're, they're kind of hard to find and we've actually had trouble finding them um, the first cave was found um, in the 1940s and the last cave was not found until I don't know when the most recent cave was found maybe the 1990s maybe there's been like one minor discovery found more recently um, uh, the most important caves were cave 1 cave 4 and cave 11 I think um, that had a ton of stuff um, and then the other caves had little little minor caches. But yeah, they, they, they hid their, their important religious documents, which are Jewish, uh, sectarian Jewish. So sometimes they disagree a little bit. Um, there's, there's actually pluriformative text. There's a lot of different versions of the text that are found. Um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we see evidence uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls that actually might have been different versions of the Bible floating around before the time of Christ and around the time of Christ. And then the version we have, we say like so the correct traditional rabbinic version, which differs from the Greek translation a little bit in some places. We would have said that like that's the real one. The translation, the Greeks were translating, the, the Greek translators are making it kind of weird and they're, they're doing weird stuff. Except that we've now found Hebrew originals in the Dead Sea Scrolls that match, some of them match the Greek translations better than the original Hebrew, right? It's like, oh my gosh, this is like, if you translate this literally into Greek, that's what the Greek would say. So there seem to be multiple versions of the Bible floating around in this ancient time. Um, and then it's these scrolls indicate that to us. Interesting. We didn't know that before. We uh, People probably suspected it. We didn't know it before. Now we know. Now we know. There's different versions of the Bible. In what ways is Jesus uh, in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets? Okay. So, um, I would say that very little that Jesus um, teaches, like ethically, uh, more like in terms of, of the coming of the kingdom of God and what the kingdom's going to be like, and how things really ought to be, I think I would say that there is there's actually very little that uh, is not right from the Old Testament. Um, so, so I'd that's say that, not a bad question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the Jesus is Oof. one is absolute like like um, Jesus is kind of groundbreaking as a, like if we're talking to just purely historical Jesus, Jesus seems to be groundbreaking as a synthesis, pulling some apocalyptic stuff into a lot of this traditional um, like prophetic material and then his own sort of slightly unique spin on interpretation of the law, but probably not totally unique, where, you know, he he thinks the Sabbath is for like the, you guys getting along well, right? He does not seem to think, like he thinks that the Sabbath should be a convenience to human beings, right? Um, not, uh, and, and respecting it is, is totally good, um, but, you know, there's no problem with doing good on the Sabbath. Uh, if you want to do something good, you should not let Sabbath rules stop you from doing good. Sure. Right? Yeah. Uh, which, which is something that later Judaism, uh, will add, there's a command to preserve life, but outside of the command to preserve life, in Judaism, uh, at least Orthodox Judaism, later, you're not supposed to break the Sabbath rules for any other reason. Um, so, you know, but Jesus says, like, well, if a, if a shepherd loses a sheep on the Sabbath, you're going to go after that sheep, right? Um, not because, like, because you care about your sheep, right? Right. Um, if, you know, it's not a problem to heal on the Sabbath, right? Why would Why would that be a bad thing? And the Sabbath is sort of a, I mean, please help me here, but, but it's essentially like 
we're going to imitate the creation of the world and we're going to work and then rest. Yeah, we're going to rest on the seventh day. Right. Yes, and we're, we're going to, and traditionally the, the thing then the Sabbath that you didn't do was anything that was done as the normal procedures for the celebration in the temple are not done on the Sabbath by ordinary people. So that includes like lighting stuff, any kind of economic transaction, all that stuff. Are, 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 those are work. Um, agricultural work, um, you don't do it on the Sabbath. Interesting. Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, I was, so I had that conversation with Elaine Pagels, and we were reading something out of Philip or Thomas, I guess it had mm -hmm. to have been Thomas, and, she, and there's this great line where it's like, well, what should we tell, who should we tell people we are, where should we tell people we're from, and Jesus in the book of Thomas is like, you know, you're children of the light, mm -hmm. right? And it's sort of nodding back to the sort of primordial light of the Old Testament. Yeah of genesis you probably know really well mm -hmm. and then and then it's like well what is the sign of that in us and there's this really cool response it's like the sign of that in you is movement and rest mm -hmm. which yeah is bizarre the like, gospel of thomas a lot of it is bizarre like i thought it was pretty cool did you do the did you do the line where like um like you know like well how are women supposed to be saved well women will be saved by becoming men Right, because that's also a line of Gospel Thomas, which is like, like you know, women are inferior, but through me they can become men, and then they can be saved. So yeah. Thomas is some weird stuff. So so we we can get into that if you want. No, this, I'm, is, I'm about, just, I'm this just, is about me interviewing you, yeah. but I, but I am I have all sorts of opinions on that. Yeah, and my my what I see what I asked Pagels, and she didn't totally. Did you ask her about that line? She totally she didn't totally disagree with me on this. It seemed was essentially that. I read in the book of Thomas. Now, mm -hmm. Gnosticism is a huge book. Yeah. Right? And she acknowledged. She obviously, mm -hmm. you know, chief among them would tell me that. Yeah. She doesn't even say Gnosticism anymore. Gnostic Gospels, non-canonical, and then points to the Gospel. Mm -hmm. In Thomas, and I understand that because some of them are, are wild, and there's all sorts mm -hmm. of, like, mythologies within them, right? Yeah. But then there's ones like Thomas and Mary Magdalene and Philip that seem sort of like what in... Eggles' words would have been, God damn it, Hensler. Put it on silent. Should have done it before. They would have, they would have been, no, I'm just joking. They would have been sort of the esoteric teachings as opposed to the public teachings. And the esoteric teaching would have been something like, to rewind for a second, one of our colleagues, or a couple of our colleagues, are always saying, careful with the Gnostics. They're, you know, strict dualists, and this is good, and that's bad, and this, right? And I sort of said, well, when I read Philip, when I read Thomas, it, there's almost this strange, almost Eastern non-duality. Yeah. Look under the rock, there I am. Look under the stone, there I am. Where it's like, Jesus is sort of identifying with everything. And there's this weird, like in Mary Magdalene, it starts with, you know, when will the end of an eon be? And Jesus' response in that is like, uh, when everything goes back to the same source. Yeah. And I I view, and this is, look, I understand this is wild, but with that line about men becoming women and women becoming men, I think that that is almost like a nod to this, this very literal idea of consubstantiality. Yeah. And... I'm not sure that there's men becoming women. In or, sorry, yeah, yeah. so women yeah. becoming men, yeah. right? When will the women be saved? Yeah. Essentially, when there are no differences between the sexes, yeah. right? And I sort of look at that like, 
what is the this is I'm taking some of this from mm-hmm. Joseph Campbell, but he's mm-hmm. like the way out of the Garden of Eden, which is this you know paradisal biblical state, right? The way out of the Garden of Eden is through the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he's like that's duality, mm-hmm. good and evil. Yeah. Those are binaries, right? Yeah. And he's like as soon as you're like me and other, you're out of the garden, mm-hmm. right? And he's like, what's the way back in? The way back in is through the fruit of another tree, and this is gets crazy but the fruit of the other tree is jesus nailed to his tree which is through what what is jesus believes that he's consubstantial with the father being unified with the christ on the cross who is who is rejoice yeah so so the the way out of the garden is duality and the way back in is to realize that we are all made of literally the same substance Mm -hmm. and i hear in thomas even in those really crazy lines like when when are the women going to be saved Mm -hmm. i hear echoes of of an argument of consubstantiality yeah i think that that is definitely so yeah um, if you're reading it you're like oh yeah when the men become or when the women become men that's wild and i was like well obviously yeah that is wild this Mm -hmm. is poetry yeah no i think that that's 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 definitely an interesting take i usually use it to students to demonstrate like yeah, the Gnostic Gospels are wild. Like, but I think that's a yeah. straw man. I yeah. think, of course, like to the to, yeah. to kids, right? But at what point does that become a straw man? And I think somewhere between junior year yeah. of undergrad. Yeah. So I think I think that my my big point is is, is not that these have nothing to them. I, I don't I don't want to suggest that. I think that what what I want to suggest is there. Uh, it was not arbitrary and capricious why certain gospels were excluded from the canon and certain were included. Right? They already have a perspective. And they, almost all of the Gnostic Gospels, uh, which is a term I will use, are later than the, than the canonical Gospels. In fact, I would say all of them are. Um, Thomas is later than any of the canonical Gospels. It might not be later than, like, Second Peter, which might be the latest epistle in the New Testament. Um, but I'm not sure. Um, Peter and Mary Magdalene are also are, are probably um, after Thomas. Um, yeah. Um, but they would have all, presumably, I actually don't know this, but I, I would imagine many of them or some of them would have been on the table for consideration in the Council of Nicaea, which is where we sort of get the canon, correct? I bet sure they might have, it might have been the case that no one who was seriously be, like making an argument of Nicaea would have brought those Gospels. That's a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so it might have, they might have already been excluded from like the serious business of Christianity. Um, I don't know that, though. Okay. Um, it might be that like someone brought their whole literary collection and like what about this one? Like that's weird. We're out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I, I would definitely agree with you that uh, people who are like the Nazis are strict dualists. They're wrong. I think. Um, mm. I don't think that's correct. Um, I don't like that. I don't think the Gnostics are, are Manichaeists. Um, I think that's that's uh, the Gnostic Gospels sound a lot like, like like the Gnostic tradition does sound like it's almost been influenced by like Buddhism or Hinduism. Right? Like, like, yeah, there's like, a mysticism. Yeah, there, there's, there's a mysticism um, there that is, you know, really, really pretty right. deep. Um, ultimately, it's not how I understand the world. It's not my Christianity. Um, but I think that to say there's nothing there uh, or to say, like, these are just, like, crazy people, that's, that's incorrect. Now, to say that, like, there is a secret esoteric knowledge and the exoteric knowledge of Christianity, the publicly available knowledge is like that's not the main point i don't think that's like you know 
that Jesus came to bring us secret knowledge to save us from this corrupt, fundamentally corrupt world. No, the, the Christian tradition, it does, it's not just that it says that's wrong. It says that that's really wrong because the world is good. The world was created good. There's nothing wrong with this world, like, right? There's sin in the world, but the world is good. And the Christian tradition repeatedly affirms that. And the Gnostic tradition that would suggest that matter is evil and spirit is good, which is not everywhere in Gnosticism. I don't think Gnosticism is one thing. The unifying principle of Gnosticism, which might not be true of every line of Thomas, right. is the idea that secret knowledge is what saves you. Um, that's the unifying idea of Gnosticism. Um, but the idea of matter is evil seems to be common in Gnosticism. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's just not what Christians or Jews have traditionally thought. Yeah. When I talked to Pagel, she, she said, do you speak any other languages? And I said, oh, I took French. Mm -hmm. to say that I speak it is a stretch but she said well she said do you know the, the word connector and savoir and I said oh yeah to know and to know and she said right she said her understanding of, of the actual I, mm -hmm. Greek yeah the actual Greek would have been something like connetra which would have been like a, a sort of personal knowledge or familiar knowledge as opposed to like I know math yeah there's, there's, like, there's two I know Greek Kevin. verbs like um, yeah, uh, gnosis and on. Right. Are, yeah. And at least if I understood her correctly, she was she said something like that gnosis, that secret knowledge that would save them was something like knowing not knowing intellectually, but knowing actually experientially. Yeah. A a consubstantiality or a mystical oneness. Mm -hmm. And when I asked her what mysticism was, she said it's essentially and, I, and I'm pointing to her because of, you know, it's not mm -hmm. every day I get to talk to somebody who's, who's mm -hmm. that, you know, into this stuff. Um, when I asked her about mysticism, she was like, it is a, at least her understanding, and, you know, she might want to, I, I don't know. But she essentially told me that her definition of mysticism was something like that, that sort of oneness or that understanding or consideration of the connection or that yeah. That really strange connection between people. Yeah. And I think, like, our modern language would would consider that we're all made of atoms. Yeah. I, I, I think I would probably emphasize that um, mysticism is, is, is a oneness. I would suggest it's a oneness between you and, like, the ultimate reality of all existence, which right. we would call God, um, but rather what, than but a oneness with us. Yeah, but, but no, everyone but else is would one include, with that too. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Interesting. And there are Sorry, Christian mystics, too, of... later. There are later Christian mystics, too, who will experience that oneness with God. Right. Yeah. And it, yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Sorry to side rally there. And, no, no problem. Um, there's a guy that graduated from the prep who just wrote a book called The Immortality Key. And he essentially does like um, forensic biological research on these like early Christian cups and mm -hmm. finds like psychedelics in them. Ooh. And then connects that to like this, the research that's going on at Johns Hopkins about the, the relationship between psychedelics and religious experiences. Yeah. And it starts to sound very much like, uh, I always forget if it's William James or Henry James. Yeah, William James is the... The variety uh, of religious yeah. experience. It starts James to sound... his brother is an author, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What a household that yeah. must have been. And, and it starts to really sound like William James' yeah. like understanding of the varieties of religious experience. Yeah, um, so I would say that um, if, you, if you're interested in like psychedelics and religion, there's a great psychology work that I read in undergrad that was assigned to me in psychology of religion called Saints and Madmen. 
Um, I don't remember the author, but if you just look what up Saints... What an amazing title. Yeah, Saints and Mad Men. And it really suggests that, like, there's, like, the difference between, like, people we classify as crazy and people we classify as, like, holy... Visionaries, for Yeah, sure. yeah, is, is almost entirely whether we think that they're doing good or not with their visions. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to do more research on that and, mm-hmm. then, and then call you again. Mm-hmm. Uh, totally, possibly going in a totally different direction. Okay. You mentioned earlier sort of um, this question of whether or not the Bible is the, the product of divine revelation. Yeah. And like, but you, you couched in there that you don't think that's meant to be literal. <clears throat> now, I've, now, I've always found this really interesting distinction and, and having the chance to teach literature to kids, I've found that if I hand them the myth of Sisyphus or Prometheus, their interpretive minds go absolutely wild thinking about, like, oh, like this is, I understand this isn't a person and this is like the spirit of something. This is the spirit of a historical thing sort of embodied in mm-hmm. one character in this story, right? Um, and it's not fire, but it's technological insight and it's not actually a boulder going of it, right? Mm-hmm. But if I then hand them anything from the New Testament, they all, all interpretive uh, faculties seem to lock up. Yeah. Why do you think that the New Testament um, is is so often read through a purely historical lens? Yeah. So, so part of that... And what's the danger of that? Okay. So part of that, compared to, um, like, the myth of Sisyphus that you give as an example, is that while I don't think we can trust the history as entirely literally true... Um, there is sort of an underlying stratum that is the history, right? So there is history there. So You're pointing to Jesus at this point. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So Jesus literally existed, and at least a lot of the stuff in the New Testament, at least the underlying stuff in the New Testament, literally happened. Meaning, he, like, or, or at least is presented as having literally happened. The students start, start by assuming that it literally happens, right? They don't, even if they're, like, if they're trained by me, they're not going to assume it's all literally true. Right, but they're. I mean, Jesus is real. Um, I don't. I tell them about like the the, the myth, Jesus myth idea. Um, I tell them it's dumb because um, it is. Uh, I tell them why I think it's dumb. Um, so a lot of the stuff we've talked about. But can um, you imagine why it may not seem dumb? Like if you had to steel man that argument on the other side, it's very easy for me to think. Look, if I didn't grow up sort of ensconced in these things, I would think you can't draw the line between, okay, maybe this itinerant preacher existed, Mm -hmm. right? But was he born of a virgin? And was there a star and three magi? And Right? Yeah, and I, I, uh, yeah, I think that from... Like, there's so much of it that sounds mythological. And I think that a lot of it is, right? Um, I don't think that the virgin birth is a fundamental element of Christianity. I don't know why God couldn't have come in through a normal sex sex act into the world. Um, I don't know why that has to be the case. I think that a lot of that, like, like, like for instance, right, um, a, a lot of that stuff, like the star, like that, that's a mythic message. Could there have been a star? It's not like, you know, or a comet in like the Italian tradition or whatever. That's not impossible, right? Like the magic, like none of this stuff is like completely outside the realm of possibility. But um, it feels a little mythic. Yeah, but it's mythic. And, and I don't think there's any reason to think it's literally true because like, it's got the, the, the mythic trappings, right? If we handed our yeah. kids Noah, like the story of Noah, they would be like, okay, 
I yeah. can understand that this isn't maybe historical. Yeah. But then, given the New Testament, yeah, there's there's a underlying historical stratum, and yet they sort of in, they almost um, bring in with that all the things that seem so clearly yes. mythological. And I yeah. think, I think and, if I had a steel man on the other side, it's like, if you can't draw the line, then I have to draw it for you and make it kind of binary and say, you know what, the whole thing's a myth. Yeah, and I, I think that that makes, it, it makes sense, that, and that's what a lot of people have done, right? Like, like a lot of people who don't believe in Christianity are just like, well, I, I, don't, I don't know what's true and what's not, and therefore my inclination is just to assume it's all not. Right. Um, um, I have never really liked that perspective in anything. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this sort of like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna have, we're just gonna do a default assumption, and that's just how things are now. Um, that that move to reduce this this sort of reductive move, uh, because we can't prove something, that seems unhelpful to me. Mm. Um, especially like when we're not like we're not coming up with a scientific hypothesis to test. We have no tests for this. We have no experiments to run. Um, Interesting. It seems like we're simply reducing. Uh, something to, and, and we also we have no no evidence that suggests that, that hypothesis is more accurate than that Jesus is historically true. In fact, I would dare say the evidence points the other way. Um, and so you're coming up with a hypothesis where you basically say all things we cannot prove are therefore false, which is a a dumb move, mm. right? Um, uh, like it's it's basically saying like, um, say in the Middle Ages you're just like. I have no method to prove that, like, I don't know, electricity is real or something. I have this, like, I, yeah, like, I have no method. I, I mean, I don't know why they're hardly from electricity in the first place, but, like, I have no method to prove that, therefore there's such thing as electricity, right? Like, that's what that is, right? Now, it, then you wait for the experiment. Now, I don't think we're waiting for an experiment with respect to God, right? I don't think that we have experiments that will prove God or prove Christianity correct, Um I don't expect those to come in our lifetime. I don't expect them to come after our lifetime. I don't expect them to come during the existence of the human race. Right? I don't think we'll ever prove Christianity. Uh, we will know after we die if we still have any kind of conscious existence. Um, and if we don't, we won't because we're dead and that's all there is. Right? That's, um, the, so either we will know or we won't, but no, I don't think any living being will ever know whether Christianity is real. For, for, like, like, like intellectually be able to prove it scientifically. Um, this is we have to make a, a leap of faith, and and uh, there you go. It's a good plug. Mm-hmm. Uh, given that there are so many things we'll probably never know about, I, I mean, I've said the Bible, but you could say Christianity, mm-hmm. religion, God, whatever. Why do you think it's so important to study and to learn? Okay, so I'll go with the Bible. Um, so if you're a Christian, you think there is real religious truth in the Bible, right? You think that, and I say as a Christian who doesn't have any idea how to figure it out. Um, I think that there is there is depth here, right? Uh, I have a, a student uh, who is totally a non-believer who just we were reading a passage from the Gospel of John. He's just like, this is profound, right? Yeah. Like he like he finds some, some meaning in it because it's it's a it's a really deep work of literature. So I think that you can grow as a human by reading it. Um, I also think if you're a Christian, if you have beliefs, right, like that this there's a message here, then it behooves you to study what God's message is, even if. The method that we have for like actually getting to it and knowing we're right is something that I have no confidence in. Um, and then, with respect to the Bible as a cultural artifact, the Bible has a profound influence on in our culture. A lot of our society is based on some principles that come out of the Bible. Uh, Christianity's had 
which which has ideas from the Bible and the teaching of Jesus, which are preserved primarily in the Bible, um, has had a tremendous influence on our ethical perspective in the modern world. Um, That's absolutely profound, right? So um, uh, I think that the story, like if you care about literature, the stories of the Bible have had a profound influence on literature. Everyone in the Middle Ages, everyone in the early modern period, um, you know, the Renaissance, they all knew the Bible well, right? They're, they're, they're two biggest sources of knowledge with Bi- like uh, for inspiration were the Bible and were mythology, right? A class of mythology, the Greeks and the Romans. Um, though, like, you can't understand the references they're making if you don't understand the Bible. So if you care about the arts outside the Bible, the Bible means something to you because the Bible allows you to make connections and see things they're doing that otherwise you wouldn't be able to. Um, Very well said. Yeah. Um, there, there's, there's a lot of, of stuff there, right? Um, but I, I think that by understanding the Bible, you understand better where we're coming from. Um, and I think that if you understand where we're coming from, even if the Bible is less important to what we want to be in the future as a society, and, and probably is compared to the past, um, I still think seeing this really important element of where we come from uh, really clarifies in some ways... Um, where we can go. So I think I, I think one thing that happens in the world often is we, we follow a trajectory, we see where we're going, but we don't necessarily always think about why. Mm. And I think if we see where we came from better, we can see where we might want to be. Uh, we, we might not make the mistakes of the past. And uh, people talk about learning history, but I would say learning the collective wisdom of a people that dealt with a lot of shit, um, which is what the Bible is. The Israelites went through a lot of stuff. Um, can really benefit you as you move through the world as a society. So the more people we have in our society who know this material that is that really deals with some heavy stuff, uh, the better we are. And, and I think that's an argument maybe for just being educated in general. But I think that this work has some particular value because I think it deals with some stuff that um, not every work deals with as heavily. What do you, and what do you think about that um, sort of as a biblical scholar? What do you think about the sort of evolutionary argument that? These are some of the oldest stories. Like, sort of, if you subscribe to the Pagan Continuity Theory or something, something like it, these are really old stories, and they've survived, which is to assume, sort of, or presume that they might have worked. That there's sort of an evolutionary component that that these stories have lasted. Yeah. Do you subscribe to any of that? I think that they last in part because I mean I think there's a lot of accidents of history that have kept these stories relevant. I know, um, but I'm thinking even before. Christians, like yeah. that that sort of evolution. A lot of the ideas here that get preserved in the Bible are older than yeah, um, yeah, and then they they are preserved in part because they resonate with us. I think that's definitely a thing that's going on. Um, uh, I think that um, the idea, like, I mean, I think you're talking about like archetypes and like the Bible taps into archetypes that we really that resonate with us as humans. We've evolved yeah. to have certain perspectives. Yeah, um, I think that there is. Um, I think that that can be overdone, but I think that certainly there's something to it. Uh, and I think it's, there's certainly some some real value to um, recognizing that these texts are texts that speak to us, and the more we get spoken to by things that speak to us that are that tap into that, I think the more we're uh, enabled to grow uh, as as uh, as people. Right? I think that the more self aware we become of who we are. I would say. Yeah, that's a, that's what an amazing place to end. At the risk of ruining that, when mm-hmm. I went to <laughs> when I went to Elaine Pagel's house. Mm-hmm. She had in her sort of office this huge, literally this huge red book mm-hmm. that was 
you referenced the archetypes, Carl Jung's Red Book, and it's mm -hmm. some version of it that's sort of blown up. Mm -hmm. And I thought that there was a part of me that kind of laughed because I was like, wow, this really serious biblical scholar mm -hmm. has this sort of wild text. Yeah. Uh, and, and then, you know, when you put it like that, I really shouldn't have been surprised mm -hmm. that, that there are so many overlaps there. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, I cannot wait to read more and ask you 15 more questions. All right. Kevin, this was awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much, Kevin.